0: This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. if you joined us in the middle, I just want to say welcome. Uh, Glad to have you with us. I'm John. I'm the campus minister here with RUF at Wake. And I want to start with a question for you tonight. Uh, Might sound like a strange question, but the question is, if you were going to conquer the world, what sort of army would you build? If you're going to conquer the world, what sort of army would you build? Would you go on like the Navy SEALs route, get a an elite team of a few special forces to go do the dirty work in the dark of the night, or maybe you'd amass a horde of orcs, I don't know, like Sauron and Lord of the Rings, or uh, maybe you would think about tanks and um, large machinery, or maybe it would be guns and missiles. How would you do it? If you were to conquer the world, what sort of army would you build? N.T. Wright, who is a um, a scholar at Oxford University, says this... um, He wrote this, he said, when God went to sort out the world, as the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount make clear, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken, the justice hungry, the peacemakers, the pure hearted, and so on. He writes that no one imagined in January 1999 what would happen less than three years later as planes smashed into buildings and the world changed forever. The Western world and the Western church was embarrassingly unprepared not just for the terrible and wicked deeds of September 11th, 2001, but for the worldview changes that it offered. For far too long, Western Christianity had believed, at least implicitly, that religion and politics were two such separate things that one didn't really need to think too hard about how they might engage one another. The reaction to the atrocity was then predictable. Meet fire with fire. The result of that in turn has also been predictable. There is far more in unrest in the Middle East than there was 15 years ago. In this strange, dark new world that we live in, we urgently need new light. Jesus of Nazareth brought brought that light a long time ago. The world and the church have found it too dazzling, and we have done our best to cover it up, talking busily about a private spirituality in the present and a heavenly salvation in the future. But when Jesus taught us to pray, that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on earth as in heaven, he actually meant it. When he said that all authority on heaven and on earth had been granted to him, he meant that too. Wright writes that we have scarcely begun to figure out how this ought to work out in practice. I love the way that he put that. When God wants to sort out the world, he doesn't send in the tanks, he sends out the meek the broken, the justice-hungry, the peacemakers, the pure-hearted, and so on. Well, This semester, as we're gathering together on Tuesday nights, we are reading the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a a sermon that Jesus gave that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And what we saw last week as we read the first four of the Beatitudes, Susan just read for us the second four, but in the first four we saw that Jesus pronounces blessings on those who come to him empty-handed and broken and sad and hungry. And the blessing that he gives is life in the kingdom of God. And as we look at the second set of Beatitudes tonight, we see that in them Jesus shows us us what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Not not what we have to do to earn our way into the kingdom, but rather what happens to lives and communities when they are lived under God's gracious rule, when they are lived in the submission of God to the king. And when lives and communities come under the gracious rule of God, they become radically different. Tonight we're going to look at these four beatitudes that Susan read for us. And what's happening in the second set of beatitudes is that Jesus is describing what life in the kingdom looks like. Now that you have entered into the kingdom, now that you have received God's grace given to us in Jesus, how do you respond? What does a life look like that's lived in response? So just two points for us tonight as we look through this Um, First, what are the marks of life in the kingdom of God, and what is the motive for life in the kingdom of God? So first, the marks of life in the kingdom of God. So how do you know when it moves, when the seasons move from summer into fall? How do you know when summer is over and fall has begun? What are the marks of the fall? Well, next Tuesday is the autumnal equinox, that's a new word for me, Um, and what that means I didn't know this until today. Some of you know this. What this means is that the sun will be directly over the equator and night and day will be equal. And after this day, equal lengths. And after this day, the temperature begins to drop and the leaves begin to change. And there's a transformation that happens as the seasons change. You know that it's fall outside because of the changes that you see and the changes that you feel. And there are marks that reveal to us that we're in a new season. And in these four Beatitudes, Jesus is describing the marks of life in the kingdom of God. How people look when they have been transformed by God's grace. How our lives change when we begin to submit to the gracious rule of our king. And Jesus names four marks here. Mercy, purity, peace, and persecution. So first, he says, blessed are the merciful. Uh, Last weekend, I binge watched the first few episodes of the show Cobra Kai which at the time was number one on Netflix. So that means that there were lots of people binge-watching with me. Maybe you were doing it. And if you're unfamiliar with Cobra Kai, it's sort of this like reboot, remake of the old Karate Kid, the one from the 80s. And um, so the premise of Cobra Kai is that the bad guy from Karate Kid is now a kind of washed-up guy. He's got a dead-end job. He's a single dad. His son hates him. Um, and there's this scene where he's buying dinner with the few bucks he has, and it's in that like spinny thing in the 7-Eleven. And he, he buys a piece of pizza for dinner. And he goes outside and sits on the curb and eats it. And while he's out there, there's this group of high school bullies that make fun of him and they end up beating up this kid. And he ends up doing all his karate on them and realizes I need to reopen the Cobra Kai dojo um, because he's tired of being on the bottom and not being given any hand up. And the three, like the, the, the motto of Cobra Kai is strike first, strike hard, and show no mercy. The beatitude of the world is, blessed are those who get revenge. And Jesus inverts this, and he says, blessed are those who show mercy. Well, what is mercy? The Bible describes mercy as compassion for those who are in need. It's caring for those whom we see who are in pain or misery or distress. Mercy extends relief and it cures, and it helps, and it heals. Now, in a way, our culture celebrates mercy, or rather, it celebrates people who are merciful, but not quite, because we put conditions on our mercy. We celebrate mercy when it's extended to the people who we think deserve it. But God puts no conditions on mercy. God's mercy is not for the deserving, but for the undeserving. You might have read about this. This weekend, um, two cops were shot in L.A., And they were taken to the hospital to go into surgery. And while they were in surgery, a group of people gathered outside of the hospital and started chanting, let them die, and tried to break into the hospital. And in their eyes, these cops were people who did not deserve mercy. And if we're honest, I think you and I are not much different. We have conditions over who we think should and should not receive mercy. I saw a Twitter post this weekend that made me laugh. Um, It read... Some woman flipped me off and honked in the McDonald's drive-thru because I was taking too long to order. So I paid for her food. And when I got to the second window to get my food, I showed them both receipts and took her food too. I paid for it. It's mine. Get back in line, lady. (laughs) All right, it's funny. Um, But it reveals that if we're left to ourselves, we see revenge as delicious and justified, and forgiveness as boring and realistic. Now, you might hear these two stories and think, John, the McDonald's story is funny, and the L.A. story is horrible. They're not the same. And no, I'm not conflating the two. But Jesus rejects them both, and he blesses those who do the opposite. He blesses those who show mercy. And he says that those who show mercy are the ones who will receive mercy from God. Now, what is he doing here? Is he saying that in order for you to receive mercy from God, you have to be someone who shows mercy? That God's mercy is somehow something that you earn through your deeds of mercy? That's not what Jesus is saying. Think about it this way. Do the changing leaves cause the fall to arrive? Or do the leaves change because the seasons have begun to change? Just as we can't make the seasons change by pulling leaves off the trees, we can't merit God's mercy by our own mercy. Nothing moves a person to forgive like the trauma of having been forgiven themselves. Nothing proves more clearly that we have been forgiven than our own readiness and willingness to forgive others. See, to forgive and to be forgiven, to show mercy and to receive mercy, these are two sides of the same coin and they can't be separated. Second, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means to not be double-hearted. It means to be sincere. Um, Great clip from the show Portlandia. Uh, One of my favorite clips are these these two couples and they are on the internet and they're looking at someone's social media. Uh, And one of them just is thinking out loud and they say, man, I wish my life looked like that person's life. And then Fred Armistead says, everyone on the internet, they're not having as great of a time as you think they are. I guess people are just cropping out all the sadness. The question for you to consider is what do you crop out in order to present yourself in a way that you think will make you acceptable? What parts of you do you cut off so that you won't stick out? And as you use social media, what story are you telling about yourself to your friends and your followers? Are you telling them the true story or are you cropping out all the sadness? Jesus says that he blesses the pure in heart. He blesses those who are utterly sincere. Purity of heart is the opposite of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, uh, this word hypocrite, is rooted in the Greek word hypocrites, which means a stage actor, someone who's a pretender or a deceiver. And this is because in ancient Greece, actors were people who wore masks. So in order to play a part on the stage, you would put on a mask and assume a different role. So a, a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be a certain way, who puts the mask on um, for one group of people and puts a different mask on for a different group of people. And we are tempted every day to wear different masks for the different people we interact with. And Jesus is saying that he blesses the people who tell the truth to themselves and about themselves to the world. He says that those who are utterly sincere will see God. What does he mean by this? He means the only way that you will know the real God is by bringing the real you to him. God wants you to know him and to see him. And if you're having a hard time connecting with God, the reason might be is that you're spending too much time and effort pretending. The real God wants the real you, not the facade that you offer to everyone else. One of my favorite favorite Brothers songs right now is this song, Tell the Truth. And the chorus goes, tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. Tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. He says, I lied to the doctor. I lied to my lover. I want to make amends. Where do I start? Tell the truth to yourself. The rest will fall in place. This is so good. It's so honest and so needed. How do you move from hypocrisy to purity in heart? Start by telling the truth. Sincerity means that your whole life, public and private, is transparent Before God and others. Third, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Those who are in the kingdom bear the mark of being part of God's family, and the family business is peacemaking. And it's clear beyond question that the teaching of Scripture is that God's people should not seek or be responsible for conflict, but that we're called to the exact opposite. And peace, biblical peace, isn't just the absence of conflict, but it has a much fuller meaning. Peace here means reconciliation. And the verb to make peace is also translated to reconcile. It's used by the Apostle Paul to describe the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. In Colossians 1, Paul says that God, through Christ, was pleased to make peace, to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by his blood shed on the cross. And Jesus says that peacemakers... Will be called the children of God. Those who engage in the family business will be part of the family. And this work, this work of reconciliation, is hard work, it's costly work. I read about a woman named Regine. Um, Regine was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. And during the genocide, uh, she was hiding, and she actually became a Christian while reading her sister's Bible. And then she fled to Canada for refuge and she met her husband, Gordon, and they decided together to return to Rwanda to show the love of Christ to the people who had once been her enemies. And she said, she tells the story that there was a woman whose only son was killed in the genocide. And this woman was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. And she prayed and she said, God, reveal my son's killer to me. And one night this woman had a dream and she dreamt that she was going to heaven but there was a complication. In order to go to heaven, she first had to w- pass through a certain house. She had to walk down the street, enter the house through the front door, go up the stairs, go through the rooms, and exit through the back door. And in prayer, in the dream, she asked God whose house this was, and he told her, it's the house of your son's killer. The road to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. Well, two nights later, there's a knock at her door. And she opened it, and there stood a young man. It was about her son's age. And she said to him, yes. And he hesitated. And then this young man said, I'm the one who killed your son. I'm the one who killed your son. Since that day, I've had no life, no peace. So here I am. I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me. I'm dead already. Put me in jail. I'm in prison already. Torture me. I'm in torment already. Do with me as you wish. And the woman had prayed for this day. And now it had arrived and she didn't know what to do. She found in her own surprise that she didn't want to kill him or throw him into jail or torture him. And in a moment of reckoning, she found that she only wanted one thing, a son. So she said, I ask this of you, come into my home and live with me. Eat the food that I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes that I would have sewn for my son. Become the son that I lost. And so he did peacemakers do what god has done making sons and daughters of bitter enemies feeding and clothing them blazing a trail to heaven right through their homes finally jesus says blessed are the persecuted and it seems strange that jesus would move from peacemaking to persecution from the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility Yet, however hard we may try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live at peace with us. So why does persecution happen? I want you to think about the Lion King. Why does Scar have it in for Simba? Why does he want Simba dead? Why does he force Simba into exile? It's because he hates Simba's dad. He hates Mufasa. And if you are evil and you're trying to hurt someone, especially somebody powerful like a king, you're going to go after their kids. And the same is true for God. Because the world hates God, they go after his kids. The persecution of being part of God's family comes because of who your heavenly father is. He has an enemy who hates him and his children. And how does Jesus say that we're to respond to persecution? Look at verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. And this is so opposite of how I react naturally. Like, I want everyone to like me. I don't want anyone to hate me. But in Jesus' sermon in the Gospel of Luke, he adds to this blessing a woe. And his woe is, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if you're a Christian and you don't have any conflict in your life, not because you stirred it up, but because you're connected to Jesus, if you're a Christian and everyone speaks well of you, you need to ask yourself why. Is it because you're scared of persecution? Is it because you're scared of being identified with Jesus? And the word translated persecute means also can mean to pursue or drive away or drive out or harass. And when we experience this, because we're connected to Jesus, we're not to retaliate like someone who does not know God's mercy or sulk like a child or lick our wounds in self-pity or grin and bear it with stoicism or pretend to enjoy it like a masochist, but Jesus says that we're to rejoice. Why? Look again at verse 12. He says, because your reward is great in heaven. He's saying, because you're connected to me, you may lose everything in earth, but you will inherit everything in heaven, not as a reward that you earn, but as a gift because you belong to me. Persecution is a token of genuineness. It is a mark of Christian authenticity. And the main reason that Jesus says to rejoice is because when Christians are persecuted, they're persecuted on his account, on account of their loyalty to him and to his standards of truth and righteousness. In Acts 5, um, the apostles are, are dragged before the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and it was called the Sanhedrin, and they're beaten, and they're told, and they're reprimanded, and they're told never to talk about Jesus and his resurrection, And they come out of this with joy and rejoicing. And it says that they rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. John Stott Stott adds to this. He says, since all Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart and merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, And every Christian should expect opposition. So those are the marks. Those are the marks of life in the kingdom. And if you're still with us, it leads us to the question of why. Why would you sign up for this? What is the motive for living in the kingdom of God? I want to suppose that you have three men who each run five days a week. And suppose that you ask each of them why they dedicate their lives to running. Suppose the first man answers, he goes, I run because my father died of a heart attack at 54 and I don't want to die early. I want to be able to see my grandkids and enjoy them. And the second man says, I run because when I run, I can eat whatever I want and it makes me good and tired and I'm able to sleep through the night. And the third man says, when I run, my legs soar over the ground. The wind brushes my faith and my heart beats like a slow, heavy thunder in my chest, and I feel alive. Well, the first man runs out of fear. He's worried about the consequences if he stops. The second man runs for its benefits. He eats and sleeps better when he runs. But for the third man, running is its own reward. The first and second man love their health, their food, and their sleep. Running is an instrument. It's a tool that they use to gain what they desire. Only the third man loves running as an end of itself. Now, the motive for many Christians resembles the first two runners. We obey to avoid what we fear or to get what we want. But there is something much more wonderful on offer here. Loving Jesus for Jesus' own sake. It is worth living life in the kingdom because of who the king is. Look at Jesus and who he is. He is merciful. Jesus extended mercy without condition to those in need. Time after time in the Gospels, we see his heart being moved with compassion because people suffer. And the same is true for you. I've said this before. Jesus is magnetically drawn to sufferers and sinners because he longs to extend to you the mercy and grace of God. Jesus is pure in heart. He lived a singularly focused life. He told the truth, the whole truth, and The truth about himself and the world, and in doing so, he showed the world what God was actually like. Jesus is the true peacemaker. God is not mad at you. Jesus has made peace, and Jesus is the persecuted one. His entire ministry was marked by opposition from those in power. Because he spoke and he enacted the truth about God, he was hunted down and assassinated by the powerful and we see these beatitudes most clearly in beautiful where we see most beautifully where we see all true and beautiful things on the cross for at the center of the christian faith is the claim that the fullest revelation of god is a brown-skinned aramaic-speaking jewish man who hung naked on a cross while praying for the forgiveness of those who were murdering him he was merciful to welcome you in he was pure-hearted to show you God. He made peace to give you a father in heaven, and he was persecuted to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the words that you give us in the Sermon on the Mount and your Beatitudes, and Lord, we admit that they are so hard for us to understand and so countercultural and upside down to our world. Lord, thank you that you do not ask us, ask anything of us that you yourself do not first do. I thank you that you are the merciful one and you are pure hearted, that you are the true peacemaker and you were persecuted for us. I want to pray for my friends who are listening in and ask that you would help us.